Coffee Bible Church. Um, some of you may have noticed I came in a little late to worship today. Uh, I'll just tell you why that is. Um, found out this week I have shingles, which is great. Um, yeah, it's been really fun. I've had the, uh, the, all the nausea and sweating and fever and dizziness and all of that that so much uh, brings so much joy and happiness to my life. Um, I am at this point not contagious, but, um, but I am not feeling fantastic. And so I am um, uh, able to be here with you this morning, but I am going to slip out that door as soon as this is over rather than greet you all. And I just want to tell you that, uh, first of all, but also to tell you this, that I so appreciate uh, the job that our worship team does each week and the song selections this morning because i got to tell you, this week has not been a, a, a week in which I've been singing songs of joy unto the Lord, <laughs> okay? Um, and so it's good to come to church. And it is good to be reminded among God's people that there really are 10,000 reasons to sing praise to the Lord. Amen? Uh, when you don't feel fantastic, uh, you know, I'm on immunosuppressive medication as it is uh, uh, for my Crohn's disease, and that makes me susceptible to everything. I mean, let's face it, everything. And, um, and so it's not been a fantastic week, but it's, it's been a great morning to stand and praise the Lord and to... Uh, and to declare His goodness among His people once again. You know? Church is good for that. It, it, when, you know, it's not just that we come in order to get something, but that when we do come, well, a lot of times we do get something out of it, right? That we're here and we, we kind of reorient to life and remember how we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to feel about the world and about God and about one another. And so I was really encouraged this morning. Uh, I want to pray, and then I want to get into the Scriptures with you. God, our Father, we thank You that You do love us with an everlasting love, and that You uphold us with Your everlasting arms, that Your steadfast love never ceases, that your mercies never come to an end, but they are new every morning. Because great, our Lord, is your faithfulness. And Father, I thank you that in the midst of a hard week that I have gotten healthy enough to be able to stand here and to open your word with your people. And so I thank you for small blessings like that. And for the fact that you have bestowed much greater blessings, not only on me, but on all who were assembled here this morning, that uh, we are called to be your people, that you have given us your, your everlasting love, demonstrated completely and overwhelmingly in Jesus Christ, and drawn us to you by your Holy Spirit, and sealed us for the day of redemption, which is coming. And Father, we look forward to that with great joy. And we pray that this morning as we open Your Word together, 
that, Father, you might transform our hearts and that you might help us to see just a little bit more of your glory and your beauty and your majesty and your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past couple weeks, uh, you may have had a hard time uh, over the past couple weeks as we've been in Romans chapter 9 and we've been talking about God's sovereign will in our salvation. Um, Because what we've been focusing on over those past couple weeks is the fact that God chooses those whom He will save. We've seen that those whom God foreknew, He called and justified and will glorify. We've seen that since all people are natural-born sinners and rebels who reject God by nature and by choice, that God is not unjust in using the wicked for His purposes and in bringing about the salvation of those on whom He has set His love. And we've also seen that God's sovereign plan includes not only Jews, but also Gentiles, and the fact that God does not save every person and he doesn't, is not proof that God is somehow unrighteous. And I know that for some of us, that has been some hard teaching to swallow. It is biblical, but it's hard teaching to swallow. And I presented it without many qualifiers, honestly, because that's what the passages that we've been looking at do. They don't give us a lot of qualifiers, a lot of on the other hand. Um, They just state, this is is true. Um, There is another side to the coin, however, uh, human responsibility. uh, And the Bible holds both God's sovereignty over all of life, including over salvation, and our responsibility for both our sin and our faith or our lack thereof. Intention It holds them both together. Teaches them both that we are responsible to repent and to trust God and to believe in the one He has sent and also that God calls and saves and predestines and glorifies those whom He loves. Holds those both in tension. And it doesn't ever resolve them for us in any kind of a systematic way. Uh, we get strong statements throughout the Scripture about God's predestining, about His particular selecting love for His elect. Uh, We get alongside them constant exhortations to repent, to turn away from sin, to embrace Christ, to enter eternal life by faith, and so on. And since the Bible doesn't really resolve that tension in a systematic way, I think it's best that I don't try to do what the Bible doesn't. But I am going to tell you um, what I understand, which is that God does save us from ourselves. And that every part of us, including our minds and our wills, have been corrupted by sin ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Prior to Genesis 3, you can appropriately speak of completely free will on the part of human beings. But after Genesis 3, even our wills are corrupted. Uh, but there remain some mysteries here about how this all fits together. Amen? There really are. Like, how is it that God is three persons in one being? 
Uh, if you got it figured out, you're probably a heretic. You probably are. You're probably out of, out of orthodoxy in some way, if you think you completely understand that. Uh, in the same way, this is a paradox, things that, something that the Bible teaches that both of these things are true. And like I say, it doesn't ever systematically resolve that tension for us. And so we have to hold that both we are responsible for what we do with the invitation to the gospel and also that God predestines and calls. How that fits together, like I say, I don't have a resolution because the Bible doesn't give us one. Um, but I say all that by way of introducing today's passage because beginning in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30 and then continuing all the way through chapter 10, Paul is going to heavily emphasize the human responsibility side of this seeming paradox. And we need to see both sides of this hard to get our arms around doctrine. That both uh, God calls and saves, and yet we are responsible for our choices. Uh, so I want you to join me in uh, Romans chapter 9, beginning verse 30. And this is what the, the scripture says here. Uh, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law, that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, if you read the book of Acts... What you'll discover is that after Paul's conversion in Romans chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, that the narrative of Acts starts shifting from being mostly about Peter and the other apostles to being mostly about Paul and his missionary journeys. And whenever Paul went to a, a new city, if there was a synagogue there, he would always go to the synagogue first. And he would proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy. And he would announce this and proclaim this in front of all of, the, all of these people. Why is that? Well, because as Paul has already told us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. In other words, we get the overflow as Gentiles of the blessings and promises and, and, and uh, benefits of relationship with God through faith in Jesus. But primarily, whom Jesus was sent for was the Jewish nation. Jesus himself says, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And yet, after that, sent the, sent, the, sent the apostles out into the whole world, right? Uh, the gospel was for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And, and so, in a sense, the Jewish people are our older brothers, as it were. And yet, the overwhelming majority of Jews did not join the church. And that reality became kind of a standard argument 
as whenever Paul went from place to place uh, 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 in terms of people of his own nation who would argue against him, well, if Christianity is true, if you're, what you're saying is true, Paul, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, then how is it that so many of our people have rejected Jesus as Messiah? Why don't all the religious leaders follow after him? Well, if you, if you say it's so obvious, Paul, that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies, if it's so clear from the Old Testament, Paul, that, that Jesus is our Messiah, how come so many of us have said, no, He's not? And that we are still looking for another. Well, the first answer is, is what Paul has given in, so far in chapter 9. And he's going to give us Um, what he's talking about how God is choosing people out of that nation to to serve as the remnant of his people who will believe in Christ but that not all Jews are saved but in chapter 10 and these latter verses of chapter 9 he's going to tell us and also they have rejected God And they have rejected consciously and willfully of their own volition the message that Jesus is Messiah. That's the other side of this. Well, and then also there's going to get an an additional explanation in chapter 11 about what God is doing in total with the Jewish nation and about their one-day restoration uh, into full membership in God's people that that's not yet, but it's coming. But what he's saying is this, is that bottom line, even though they have been given amazing revelation from God, many, many people, including many of his own people, the Jews, continue to choose to reject Christ consciously and intentionally, even though as Jews of all people, they should know better. They should know better. Now look closely at the the text with me here. How are Gentiles described? Uh, They are described as people who did not pursue righteousness. And boy, you can say that again, can't you? Gentiles are a people who do not pursue righteousness. The Gentiles of, of Paul's day in particular were into every kind of immorality and sin. Uh, if, if you can believe it, the people of Paul's day had already invented and were actively engaged in every kind of immorality that we see ourselves as a country sliding into. Christianity had eliminated a whole lot of that from our country, but now that we have, have decided we want to... Uh, to go away from having found the light and start looking for the dark. We're going back into the way it was in the days of paganism, in the days of the New Testament. And and it's safe to say, in fact, that there was not a single solitary one of the Ten Commandments that were not enthusiastically broken by the Gentiles of Paul's day. So when he says 
These are people who did not pursue righteousness. Uh, that is something you can say in neon lights. Not only were they not pursuing righteousness, they were enthusiastically pursuing every kind of opposite. They weren't seeking righteousness, they weren't seeking God, but they were seeking the satisfaction of their own pleasures. And by contrast to that, the Jewish people were a people who were pursuing the law, by and large. And they were seeking to be right with God. And they thought, in fact, that keeping the law would grant them righteousness before God and earn them a place in His kingdom. They thought that. But here's the shocking surprise that Paul points out in these verses. That the wickedness of the Gentiles led them, when they were presented with the gospel, to repent and to embrace Christ. Could anything be more shocking than that an immoral, godless, unrighteous person would hear the gospel and would believe. And yet that's what happened. Wherever Paul went and spread the gospel message, there were people from out of all those wicked Gentiles of the Greco-Roman world. And these people were competing in unrighteousness at a professional level. Okay? All of these folks, if you don't believe me, read, read Corinthians. Okay, and Paul gives that long list of stuff and he says, and such were some of you, right? These are professional grade wickedness that they were engaged in. And he says, these people said, well, I will make an exchange of my sin for the righteousness of Christ. I will make that exchange. I'll make that trade. I'll get imputed and imparted righteousness from Jesus by faith in Christ. I'll do that. And Paul says, and they received it. They received it, just as God said they would. They received it. But the majority of Jews, again, shock and surprise did not. Instead, they rejected him and decided to pursue obedience to the law as a means of gaining righteousness instead. They decided to try to attain salvation, in other words, by their works. That's what Paul says. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. Has salvation ever been by works? No. Not even in the Old Testament was keeping the law a means of salvation. But the Jews of Paul's day became convinced that it was. And so they rejected Jesus and decided to pursue salvation on their own effort, by their own merit, ratcheting their way up to heaven, pulling harder on their own bootstraps. Did it work? No. It didn't work then. By the way, it doesn't work today either. 
It doesn't work today either. And the point of the quotation from Isaiah 28:16 is that you know, when confronted with the same obstacle on the road they were taking, some people, i.e. the Gentiles, found eternal rest. But some people fell over it to their own destruction. That is not a surprise, but it is just a fulfillment of what God had promised beforehand. But look a little closer. You want to underline the last line of that quotation. Because it's God's promise to all people, both Jews and Gentiles, that if you put your trust in Christ, you will never be put to shame. Meaning that when you stand before God on the great day, that you will, you will receive welcome into God's kingdom. Amen? That you're not going to be turned away at the door. You're not going to be like that guy in the parable of the wedding feast who comes to the wedding with no wedding clothes. And the master of the house says, what are you doing here? Right? If you've put your trust in Christ, you will never be put to shame. You will not have the Lord say, you know, I never knew you. We have a different destination for you. All who put their trust in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, will never be put to shame. But when you're confronted with the stone that God has marked out, you have to decide how you're going to respond. In faith, trusting in Him, or trusting in yourself. Because as C.S. Lewis said, ultimately, at the end of all things, there's only two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, through faith in Christ, Thy will be done. And there are those who, because of their faith in themselves, to whom God says, Thy will be done. And you get the, the magnificent glory, but also responsibility of deciding which destiny shall be yours. Either glory or perdition. Blessing or cursing. How will you respond to Jesus? That's the question. Because life and death part with Him. He is the resurrection and the life for all who put their trust in Him. And as Paul says elsewhere, for us who are being saved, Christ is the smell of life. But He is the stench of death to those who have rejected Him. So which is He to you? By faith in Christ, our shame is wiped away. And we receive God's righteousness. All who put their trust in Him will never be put to shame. 
Let's read on. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Now I think verse 1 is really interesting there in chapter 10. If you flip back a page or so to chapter 9 and verse 1, you'll see that the language that Paul is using here is very, very similar. In chapter 9, he talks about how he is in deep anguish over his fact that his people are not believers. In verse 10, in chapter 10, he talks about how his desire, his deep longing is that his nation would be saved. And it's as if he is reminding us again, in case we have forgotten, that this is not some academic theological enterprise for Paul. This is visceral. This is gut-level, deeply felt stuff. This is a man with a burning in his heart to see his people come to faith and they haven't, and it brings him pain. Some of you know what that's like. You've got family. I've got cousins who are Mormons. They have a zeal for God. As Paul says here, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. One of them posted on Facebook the other day about, about a nephew who is going to go be a missionary in Washington, D.C. And Lord knows they need some. Right? But not with a false gospel. That instead of bringing life, only brings death. I know what he's talking about when he says, I have a longing for my people to come to faith. It's painful, isn't it? If you've got a brother or a sister or cousins or aunts or uncles or a mom or a dad or a child who have not come to faith, you know what this is. And you want so badly for them to turn to Christ, and they haven't. This is, this is written out of passion. Not out of dry theology. We need to remember that. It gives him no joy to write of the rejection of Christ by his people. In verse 2, he tells them that what he does, he tells us what he's doing as a result. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says, when, He says, I bear them witness. What he means is that's present tense verb. That's what he's doing every time he goes to one of those synagogues and speaks to them. Y'all are, remember what Paul said on 
on, on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17. He's with the whole Gentile crowd then, but same kind of idea, I'm sure, where he says, I can see that y'all are very religious, <laughs> but, and you even have an altar to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the God you don't know, right? He's doing the same thing in the Jewish synagogue. He's saying, you have a zeal for God, but it's misdirected. That's what I want to say to my Mormon cousins. You have a zeal for God, but it's misdirected. It's misdirected. This is something he's doing on an ongoing basis because their zeal is great, but it's pointed the wrong way. Zeal for the law and the traditions will not save anybody. Instead, according to, their, to verse 3, they need to understand what God's standard of righteousness is. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They did not understand that God demands perfect righteousness and that the only way to get perfect righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to get Perfect righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. And they did not know that. In fact, they had cut down the bridge that God had built to them and for them to walk across that they might attain His righteousness. And instead of that, in their misinformed zeal for the law, they think that they can somehow be good enough on their own, by their own effort to gain God's favor. But they can't. Can they? Why not? Because the law is not meant to be a means to righteousness, but to point out the need for it. It was meant not as a system for obtaining righteousness, but to show everybody who had it that trying to obtain it that way was not going to work. And it was meant to leave everybody hungry for grace and for the imputation of righteousness that they realized they couldn't earn and don't deserve, but nevertheless freely receive by faith. And Paul concludes this uh, section with this great sentence in verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now there's some debate among scholars, and if you read commentaries you can see this, arguments about what the end means. Does that, is the end in the sense that, does that mean, does Paul mean he, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law? Well, that's possible. That's one possible way to understand that word end. Uh, does he mean the end in the sense of the termination? Meaning that Christ's coming brought to an end the law and its reg regulations. Well, yeah, that's true. When the new covenant came, the old one became obsolete. That's, that's the book of Hebrews, right? Or maybe Christ is the end in the sense of bringing an end to obeying the law 
as a means for being made righteous. After all, you couldn't become perfectly righteous by keeping it, but refusing to keep it made you unrighteous, even as you still needed to trust in God uh, and in His grace to actually obtain salvation. And I think it's, it's most likely that Paul has elements of all three of these in mind, but that what he's emphasizing in context is that the law is over. The law is over. It doesn't hold us anymore. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. You don't have to offer sacrifices at the temple. You don't have to confess your sins to the priest and name them on the head of an animal and cut his throat and barbecue him. You don't have to do that anymore. Why not? Because Christ has come. He's offered the final sacrifice for sin. He has opened the way into which we might enter into God's own presence. Christ is the end of all of that business in the law, and keeping it now has no value because Christ has come, and all who trust in Him will be saved. And all those who trust in anything else, including the law, are going to be lost. And zeal is good, but if your zeal is directed anywhere toward, than towards Christ, it will not save you. And so Christ and faith in Him is the only way home to God. Amen? It's the only way home. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we're all looking for? Some place that's home? You're not going to find it here on earth. My house is as good as it gets. I love my family. It really is. It's as good as it gets. I'll set my wife and my kids against any of y'all. In fact, you can team up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but I can tell you this. My house is still tainted with sin, just like yours. But one day, we're going home to be with our true family. By God's grace, a lot of my blood family is going to be there. My kids, Karen, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sisters, their husbands, wives, kids. A lot of you are going to be there too. It's going to be great. But the only way to go home is to trust in Jesus. The only way home is to trust in Jesus. So when you're making your way down life's highway, you're going to be confronted by the stone that God has laid there. He's too big to miss. Can't go around Him. And for some, He will be the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense that they reject to their own destruction. I hope that's not any of you. But to, for, for us who, is, who are being saved, Christ is the living stone, the chief cornerstone who has made us one with Him. And whoever comes to Him by faith will not be turned away. Amen? Amen. God, our Heavenly Father, 
we thank you that when we come to you by faith that we are not evaluated for how righteous we are. Instead, we are given the righteousness we need by grace. And that our great wickedness and all of our sin and shame is wiped away in the blood of the Lamb. And we are given the title Son of the Kingdom. That we might have an eternal inheritance with our big brother, Jesus. Now and forevermore. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That they would turn aside from all the hopes and fantasies that they had trusted in up to now. That they know right now are a sham and a lie. That will not put them in heaven any more than flapping my arms will fly me around this room. Father, I pray they would reject all that and that they would turn to Jesus Christ in faith and receive the great and glorious and good salvation you offer freely to all who believe. And Father, for those of us who are your children, regardless of what kind of week it's been, Father, I pray we would rejoice and we would declare to you your goodness and your grace because you have been overwhelmingly merciful and good to us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.